You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast, coming to you again from Santa Barbara, California, in my uh, COVID recovery. Um, I am still recovering from COVID, so please excuse any um, gaffes. Um, and I, you know, I know in my emails I've got some typos and stuff like that. Uh, and, uh, any oddball things I might say, I'm actually on some steroids that do not, uh, well, they, they make people a little different psychologically. So if I uh, say something wacky, then tag it up to the steroids, right? Um, uh, well, as an update on my progress, uh, I am about now 10 days out from positive COVID testing. I'm guessing I probably had this thing for at least four more days, about 14 days out. Overall, relatively stable right now, but I've been dealing with something that uh, many COVID patients see called the uh, cytokine storm period. Sounds scary. It kind of is scary. At a high level, uh, what this means is the virus ramped up my immune system um, big time. So my battle now is really less with the virus and more about fighting off my own immune system from trying to wreak havoc on my own body. Anyway, that's why I'm on the steroids uh, that uh, suppress the immune system at this point. And hopefully um, by next week's show, this whole thing will just be a uh, bad memory. In the meantime, though, I want to thank again uh, hundreds, maybe even a thousand of you who've reached out uh, to, to wish me well. Uh, I'm very touched by that. I especially want to thank some of my physician colleagues. Uh, and I say colleagues, but they're really members of this community because it's not like I'm working with them. They're people who are across the country who have literally you know, been helping me uh, uh, on my care. And there's just too many to mention each and every one. But I do want to mention uh, uh, in particular Patrick Troy in Hartford and his colleagues. Um, I mean, he's a uh, He's been on the phone with me every day. He's been looking at my labs. He's been looking at CT scans that I've had to have. Um, I live in a small town with not a lot of big big gun pulmonologists and ICU docs like Patrick and, and his team. So having this kind of community has had a greater perk than just the financial stuff. So again, uh, um, thank you to Patrick. And this morning, he uh, I sent him my most recent labs, and he said they were starting to look boring, uh, which is good. And he added that he knows that I like boring. <laughs> of course, he's right about that. He's uh, referring to my investment philosophy of boring is good. Now, I do feel a sense of responsibility once again to give you this public service announcement, and hopefully it's meaningful to you. Uh, avoid this virus like the plague. And that's kind of funny to even say because the plague is actually... Uh, caused by a bacteria that is actually pretty easy to treat. This thing is not easy to treat because this thing sucks and it's scary. And I can't tell you how many frightening stories I've heard in messages from you guys, you know, sending me about like otherwise healthy guys, you know, my age, um, doctors, et cetera, you know, around the country who just kind of uh, get it and they got no other problems and they die. Um, you know, so do what you can. And uh, I'm, I'm 
horrified that this is a um, become a political issue. I mean, it's just downright crazy to me. I see these um, these congressmen uh, that when they were huddled down in the Capitol, that uh, a number of them refused to wear uh, masks, and uh, I I just don't get it. To me, it's just unbelievable uh, that that uh, simple task like that to potentially protect uh, your fellow man uh, becomes a political issue. And these are times that I think we'll hopefully uh, look back as, as some very dark times. But this is about, you know, protecting other people as much as yourself. So just, you know, it's not that big a deal. Wear a mask. Um, and the other thing is get vaccinated when you can, because I guarantee you, I guarantee you that whatever side effects you have, whatever evening side effects you get, it's better than what I'm going through right now. Okay. Anyway, just some more thoughts here broadly on the virus. Um, I've been thinking about, it is absolutely mind boggling to me that a virus that started in the wild animal meat market, like bats and stuff from Wuhan, China. uh, That's what's created this havoc in my body in Santa Barbara, California. Kind of gross, uh, actually, to think of it that way. (laughs) It's kind of nasty, but it's true. And I do hope that at some point the world stands up more aggressively to to the Chinese government to regulate these places. Listen, uh, this is not the first killer virus to come from these places, these meat, uh, these meat, markets, um, the wild, uh, unregulated meat markets over there. And, you know, if you watch some of these documentaries on, uh, you know, some of the food processing, et cetera, that's going on there. I mean, that is, um, I mean, there, there's just this massive pandemic ready to break at any point, uh, from China. And the irony of it is that to this point, uh, the, the viruses that they have unleashed on the world before Corona, before COVID-19 were too deadly to really uh, significantly uh, create a, a pandemic scenario for the rest of the world. Um, they just burn themselves out because people get, people die when they get it. Well, that's, that's great, you know, but they got to do something because this is, uh, otherwise it's just going to happen again and again. And it's probably not going to be the last uh, global pandemic we have. I mean, I'm hopeful that it's a last one of uh, the next you know 100 years we can, but but I don't know unless they do something to change um, I don't see it I don't see it the globalization um, plus their sort of you know uh, unwillingness to really take uh, next level precautions and regulations on this is pretty um, pretty astounding to me and I I do hope uh, again that the world's uh, uh, stands up to the Chinese government more aggressively. Um, but what can they do? You know, that's the thing. It's, uh, you know, they're a world economic power. Uh, and you can't exactly sanction them to death like Russia or Iran. You can't really do that, right? Yeah, but you can shame them. And the Chinese do care about their reputation on the world stage. They want to be recognized as like, you know, as being um, on par uh, in all ways with the United States and Europe. And, um, you know, I think if they are shamed into, uh, you know, uh, regulations, I think that's our best bet. So hopefully, hopefully do, they do that. 
One last thing on COVID, and then we'll move on to more uh, lively topics, I guess. Uh, I found it very interesting today. I saw an article in the Los Angeles Times that reported one in three of LA County residents are estimated to have COVID-19. So they've, they've had, they've had it, they've had it. I mean, that's, that's three of the 10 million people in that population. Uh, so it's uh, not surprising that I, I guess I got it because these uh, people down in LA County keep coming, uh, coming up to Montecito and Santa Barbara because they want to get away from LA and they're bringing this stuff with them. So anyway, the good news is that uh, if there's any silver lining to that story, it's that if 30% of the population is already previously infected, theoretically, um, you know, it's easier, it's going to be easier once the vaccination gets rolled out to obtain, you know, some sort of herd immunity because you won't you know, you really just, you're targeting the 70% who's not infected. That's not to say people aren't supposed to get vaccinated if they have it, apparently still are, and, and I will do that myself. But, you know, it, it certainly helps when, you know, you're targeting 70% of the population now, and if you can get, you know, uh, you get 80, 90%, uh, 80% of those 70%, that's still pretty pretty good numbers to overall have. Anyway, so that's my... um daily uh, COVID commentary, and we'll leave it there. I do want to make sure uh, that I continue to provide you with the kind of financial information that, uh, you know, you expect from this show, which you should. It's a financial show. So today, uh, we're going to go jump into a topic that you can sink your teeth into. It was pre-recorded, obviously, before my uh, my COVID stuff, so so I'm, I'm, uh, I can actually, you know, talk normal in it. Um, we're going to talk about uh, in this interview about the different options that you have when you have capital gains. Um, now, the, the tricky thing in this space, I have to tell you, is that, you know, it, it's like anything else, right? I mean, the truth is that everybody's going to tell you their product is the best. And, um, but the reality is that there's no, um, there's no, you know, there's no one size fits all. Uh, when it comes to the issue of capital gains, and um, you really want to, you really want to hit the topic, um, you know, on the options from really from A to Z, and so that's why I asked Brett Swartz to uh, join us, and you know, he's pretty well versed on this stuff. Obviously, he has, um, you know, his own uh, specialty in in certain types of this, but he's, um, you know, provided a nice interview and broad perspective of the different things that are available to you. Um, once you listen to this interview though, come back and make sure you don't tune out after the interview, uh, itself. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about, uh, Bitcoin and asymmetric risk strategies. And so, yeah, we'll come back right after these messages with, uh, Brett Swartz. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast, he's been on our show before. His name is Brett Swartz, and he is the CEO of Capital Gains Tax Solutions, uh, which every year equips hundreds of business professionals with deferred sales trust tools to help their high net worth clients solve capital gains tax deferral limitations. Uh, his experience is very broad in this space, including uh, deferred sales trusts, Delaware statutory trust, 1031 exchanges. We'll talk about all those 
He also has sort of frontline experience as a real estate broker himself, uh, having done about $85 million worth of uh, transactions. So he's actually been down in the pits as well. Uh, Brett, welcome back to Well Formula Podcast. Buck, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's good to have you back. Uh, lots of things changing, um, and uh, but I thought it would be a good time for us to, you know, kind of talk about, you know, the, the various options that people have, um, at least currently. And part of what we may discuss a little bit is if there's anything changing or, you know, uh, what, what what we think may happen with the new administration, et cetera. But um, why don't we just start out a, a, a little bit, just, you know, I want to get into the meat of it and, um, you know, use this as an opportunity to sort of educate broadly on this topic. Your business focuses on pretty much sort of a deferral or potentially sort of a practical elimination of uh, taxes legally after some sort of liquidation event, right? Isn't that in a nutshell what you do? Correct. Yeah. Most high net worth individuals selling a primary home, business, cryptocurrency, investment, real estate, they struggle with capital gains taxes. It's somewhere between 30 and 50%, depending on the state mm-hmm. you live in and the depreciation recapture. And so we use a deferred sales trust to give them a chance to, what I like to call, have a transformational exit plan um, and not Got using it. a 1031 exchange. Yeah. So let's go through the different options because, you know, I think it's important to understand historically the concepts uh, that are out there. Uh, you know, what's appropriate because there's still times that various different types of options are going to be appropriate. Uh, and then, you know, and then kind of finish up with, you know, kind of what you do most of, which is, uh, as I understand it, the Deferred Sales Trust. So um, the one that um, we know, I think most people have heard the most about is the so-called 1031 uh, exchange. Do you want to talk a little bit about what exactly a 1031 exchange is? Absolutely. So 1031 exchange is a uh, is one of the most popular and it's a great tool to defer capital gains taxes on the sale of investment property. Um, there's some rules. You need to you need to buy like-kind investment property within uh, 180 days of closing. And so uh, it's very, very, very common um, for commercial real estate investors to use that. Um, of course, there's some inherent limitations. Um, and I like to call this more of the transactional type of exit planning where you're just kind of trading one thing for another and it may or may not really transform what you're truly looking for. And I like to use the analogy buck of Blockbuster. I don't know if you remember the days when you went to Blockbuster and Mm -hmm. you had to return the movie within three days. And if you didn't rewind it, you got a fee. And even if you showed up, the the movie may not be there. That's kind of like the 1031. You have to typically overpay for properties, you know, sell high and buy higher 180 days later which is one our parents taught us not to do, right? Taught mm-hmm. us to sell high and buy low. So the 1031, unfortunately, puts a lot of pressure on a lot of clients. And that's where I've been personally with clients in the past. And part of what happened in the 08 crash was people had overpaid. And so the 1031 can be a big challenge for that. Got it. And so, uh, you know, and some people may be trying to understand like, okay, well, when would you really use a 1031 anyway? And Here's an example. Uh, we use it obviously a lot in real estate, and particularly because we tend to depreciate our properties so much, right? So um, I've heard some people say, "Oh, you know, with bonus depreciation, you don't really need a 1031 anymore." Well, that's not really necessarily true. You know, in some cases, you may have a property that, say, you had a you bought for a million bucks. Uh, you you know you took depreciation and your basis is down to like under a hundred grand after 20 years or 
something crazy like that. And the next thing you know, you're going to sell it for $5 million. And so the problem in those situations is that if you sell it, you're not only paying the capital gains, uh, but you're also paying recapture on all of that depreciation uh, that, that you've taken during that interim. And that is one of the really powerful things about a 1031. Fair? Yeah, it is. And so just to clarify, just so your listeners know, in a 1031 exchange, your depreciation schedule travels, which is not a good thing. And so let's say you've owned a multifamily property for 27 and a half years and you've taken straight line depreciation, you'll have a zero basis at that point. Yep. So if you were to do a 1031, the old way, which is blockbuster, your old schedule travels, which is not good. The solution to that is what I call the Netflix, which is the deferred sales trust. You can get a brand new depreciation schedule buying that same deal that you would have bought. But if you just pit stop and stop on the trust and then partner with the trust and buy that brand new depreciation schedule. So that's the way well, we really like to coach clients through. I want to make, and we'll get there in a second, but I want to give sort of a broad landscape uh, first. So that's the 1031. And as you mentioned, you carry that depreciation schedule with you, which is not ideal. But on the other hand, um, you know, the, the real estate, uh, the, the real estate motto on this has always been, at least from the recent, you know, based on what tax law currently is, is that, okay, I'm just going to keep 1031 exchanging because even though that thing essentially travels with me, at some point I'm going to die. And if I, when I die, then the basis resets. That's in a nutshell what that theory is, Right. Exactly. Drop until you swap, right? right. Swap until you drop. And swap until you drop. Going. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, a Delaware statutory trust. Talk a little bit about that because I want to, again, not, I'm definitely going to get to your thing, but I want everybody to know because all these things, you know, even Delaware statutory trust gets confused with deferred sales trust because it's DST. It was DST, right? Well, which one? So what's a Del- Delaware statutory trust? Yeah. So it's just another form of a 1031. So it's part of the IRC section 1031. So I like to call it 1031 DSTs, right? Mm-hmm. So essentially you're selling your investment property, typically a private investor who's, who wants to rid of the toilets, trash and liability. And you're moving mm-hmm. into typically a big group who has a, a maybe one, two or three properties. It could be more, but generally they already have closed the assets and you can exchange your equity, your interest into their deal. Um, some of the challenges you give up all control typically and typically it's illiquid for seven to 10 years, typically very high in fees. I've closed those for clients and they do serve their purpose, especially if you have what's called a mortgage over basis issue, which we're we're doing a a partial Delaware and a partial deferred sales trust coming up here in the next few days. And so uh, they have their place. The key is what I like to talk about is selling high and buying low. And too often these Delawares are so highly priced. Cap rates are very low high fees, but it's a great way to defer capital gains tax because it's just another form of a 1031. Yeah. And and I will tell you in theory, a a Delaware statutory trust has lots of potential benefits. And I say in theory, because I've actually looked into some myself and the challenge is again, um, not only are you, it's, it's not just that you're buying at super compressed rates. You are of course. Um, but there, as my understanding goes, and maybe you clarify this, but the assets that are going in that, there are some regulations with regard to, like you're not you're not really allowed to do significant value out real estate in this. I mean, you're basically just you know buying you know uh, 
assets that you're not going to do much with and in and you're going to pay for that um and obviously there's some fees and stuff which you know if, if, if an appropriate syndicator is involved and they can make you money you don't complain about it but if they're not really allowed to do much in these trusts in the first place uh those those are some of the issues that have made it um you know potentially sort of less attractive to me the yields are not great etc but yeah i mean there's certainly a that's a, a consideration. And again, um, you know, and I think you're going to get to this um, in more detail, but when you have debt, uh, some of these things become more, more valuable. Um, let's go on then to the deferred sales trust. Uh, this is what you've been wanting to talk about. This is what you do. This is what you believe in. So how does it work? Tell me, uh, I want to use this as an example, Brad, I am coming to you. Um, and I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it a little challenging for you here because, um, again, most of, most of our, uh, most of the people who are listening to this podcast are real estate investors. Okay. So I have a, um, you know, I have a $5 million asset. Um, I have, uh, you know, let's say I've got, um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm selling, let's say I'm selling for 5 million. But I've only got you know two million dollars of equity, three million in debt. All right, uh, I know what how a ten thirty one works. How would this work with the deferred sales trust? Why don't you sort of take it? You can describe what a sales trust, deferred sales trust, is first, and then how this would work in this scenario. Great, excellent. Um, so a deferred sales trust is just a manufactured installment sale. It's like a specialized installment sale. Okay, so explain that because not everybody knows what an installment sale is. So it's uh it's where where you become the lender and you allow the buyer to uh to to borrow from you. So let's imagine this five million dollar deal, Buck, which mm-hmm. which you own. Um, in this scenario, you you owe you owe a couple million dollars of debt. You own three million dollars of debt. In this scenario, you could potentially loan uh, the new borrow up to two million dollars. Okay, mm-hmm. right, that's your actual equity in the deal. And so you become the lender, and in that scenario, the buyer puts less of a down payment, and therefore um, they get into the deal. And on your side, you get to defer the tax until you receive payments from that. So mm-hmm. with the deferred sales trust, we're just actually asking the buyer to come with the full five million at closing. And we're asking them to to actually buy the asset from the trust, um, and ex- and you're in exchange going to get an installment sale for the for the two million that was left over. We'll pay we'll pay off your initial three to the to the to the bank. So um, so debt doesn't necessarily make this uh, di- more difficult. This so it depends on the basis. So let me ask you that. What, what's your basis on the deal? A million. Okay. I'm going to make it harder. <laughs> Yeah, you have what's called a million dollar mortgage over basis. So in that scenario, we do need to replace that debt because what the government says is, Buck, if you close out on this deal or try to do a deferred sales trust, you really already took that income. You took that money out of that refinance Mm -hmm. above your basis. Therefore, we're going to tax you as ordinary income. But our solution to that is twofold. Either Buck, you either pay down the mortgage to the basis or B, we'll do what's called a bifracture 1031. And it's really simple. We move your $2 million equity to a qualified intermediary, okay? Mm-hmm. And we purchase a partial Delaware statutory trust. I'm actually doing a deal right now for a client, very similar. He sold a 18-unit apartment complex in Sacramento for about 2.6. 
and he has about a $500,000 mortgage over basis. And so we found a Delaware deal, which has about an 80%, 82% LTV. So he's going to take it 18% of that 500,000 and he's going to use that to replace the debt in the Delaware. So he has a little bit of equity into that deal. And the remaining can go into the deferred sales trust. The key here is we just replace the debt. And that's what a 1031 does. That's what the Delaware 1031 does. We replace the debt. Remember, 1031 is equal or greater value and also equal or greater debt. So as soon as we take care of that, you're good there. And the rest of it can go into the deferred sales trust. So that would be hopefully the short answer to your question. Mm -hmm. So and in that case, would you uh, net net end up without a tax bill? Correct. We call that a zero tax transaction, mm-hmm. right? Where you have, you're in a hundred percent tax deferral and the debt in this scenario is no longer in your name. If you're working with the correct t- Delawares, right? So it's non-recourse. Mm-hmm. And so he's happy there. And for this particular client, he's a baby boomer. He has over $50 million of assets and he's kind of drowning in the time and the energy to deal with California rent laws and eviction control, which Mm -hmm. which is going on, which is very, very challenging. And so he's just like, Brett, I'm just ready to retire from all this. I have enough wealth. I'm ready to be done. How do I get out of this without getting hammered with tax and enter the deferred sales trust in the Delaware? So with those those sort of uh, partial uh, Delaware, Delaware statute trust, partial deferred sales trust, Basically, on the the statutory trust side, you have you're gonna basically pass on a fraction of the equity and all of the debt to that. Exactly, got it. And then, um, is there? I mean, can you really minimize how much actual money that goes, uh, actual equity goes into the Delaware statutory trust? So the key is high LTV deals. So the groups that we work with are some of the biggest in, in the U.S. for real, owning real estate. And so they, they actually negotiate with Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. One of the biggest companies in the world. Um, this high, high debt deal, right? Because they're the tenant and they're like, basically, it, you know, they're guaranteeing the lease, right? Mm-hmm. But they're able to negotiate very, very high LTVs. And the key is just to replace that debt. That's really the key. So uh, the answer is high LTV deals, which we already have lined up which we just move it right in. So he's, uh, he's, happy are you capped that. at the LTV of, you know, the, uh, of the DST then of, of the of Delaware the deal, statutory the trust? Delaware deal. Exactly. Exactly. So sometimes it could be, it could be an 85% LTV. Sometimes in the past it's been as high as 90 right mm-hmm. now. I'd say we're like 85 to, um, 82% LTVs. Got depending it. Still not a bad, uh, still not a bad deal. So you could basically pay your mortgage down a little bit and, you know, put less in there or you could, or you could basically, you know, just deal with, you know, whatever LTV component, the equity component and and just put that in a DST and maybe get your, whatever your four or 5%. Yeah. On that 82,000. Now it's a zero coupon deal. Just so you know why, because they're just using all of the cash flow to pay down the debt. And so um, that would, you wouldn't need or want or not want the cash flow you couldn't need it because you're going to have to pay yeah. it down. But on the, the deferred sales trust side, right? That's where things change. But think of Amazon is going to pay off your debt over the next five, 10, 20 you know, years, however long it takes. And then you're going to be debt free there. And, and then in you're going to, you save 30 to 50% in tax. Uh-huh. Right. And so then what, what happens when that statutory trust at seven years comes up, they liquidate that. So typically these Delawares will, will, will move you into another Delaware, you know, they'll 1031 mm-hmm. you out or you could 1031 on your own. 
right? For that portion and do your own private deal. Just generally speaking, depending on how the structure has been set up, but the ones we work with generally will just, you can roll into the next one, or you can just take your, take your, take your capital, take your equity and pay the tax, but it wouldn't be ordinary income tax anymore, right? Because your mortgage is now paid down to your basis, right? Mm -hmm. And so it would just be capital gains tax on what you've been deferring. Got it. And, and presumably at some point it, it, you know, when you're paying down the debt, at some point they're, it's not a zero coupon deal anymore. Correct. It starts the cash flow, right? Because yeah. the debt's paid off. Right, right. Cool. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, the types of assets specifically that you can, um, you know, you can use a deferred sales trust, which is, again, this is sort of your, you know, bread and butter, you know, it's a deferred, you know, you're, you're basically an installment sale, right? Absolutely. And just give a little bit of backstory just for the listeners in the context of this. Grew up in a real estate family, Bay Area, custom homes, started working at Marcus and Millichap, sold the 0506 market and all people overpaying, taking on too much debt via the 1031s, kind of like what we're seeing right now. Um, very low cap rates, very low inventory, and just everyone, um, too many, too many, too much money chasing too few of deals. And uh, fast forward, 08 hit and the music stopped and some of our clients lost everything. Some lost half and I had to help, help them pick up the pieces, negotiate with the banks, um, re, you know, re, reassess their marketing plan for their tenants. And a lot of them, I asked the question, I said, why did it happen? They said, well, I felt like it was trapped. I was overpaying. Why? Because I had all this capital gains tax and I felt the 1031 was the only way. And so um, that's when I man my manager at Marcus and Millichap brought in a gentleman who's my business partner to talk about the deferred sales trust. And that's where everything changed. I implemented that strategy and my business exploded and grew and we can't get the message out fast enough now, but we're seeing kind of deja vu happening all over again with a lot of, a lot of things. So the essence of the deferred sales trust is like I said before, it's like a Netflix. And what's neat about it is it can do multiple product types. A 1031 only works for investment property. Whereas the deferred sales trust works for business sales, works for highly appreciated public stock or private stock, primary homes. We just did an $8.3 million deal for a primary homeowner in Palo Alto who had no way to sell the property because he had too big of a mortgage and too big of a tax. He would have lost everything if it wasn't for the deferred sales trust. Just did um, another deal in Aptos, California for 7.9 million. She's in her seventies and she's looking at, I don't want a 1031. I'm done with this. She had a two and a half million dollar uh, tax bill. Airbnb business has kind of been shut down with COVID. So she's looking around going, uh, this isn't a good position for me. So she sold, paid off her debt, which is also part of the transformational part of this. You can be debt free. Okay. Let's lead into the next part. You can be tax deferred as well as diversified. And we think diversification is the most important thing for high net worth, especially baby boomers right now, because they've made their wealth and they don't want to go through a whole crash all over again. And so what we do is we put them in the deferred sales trust, the equity goes into this trust. And at that point they can invest it wherever they like. They could put it into a syndication deal with Buck. They could put it into their own private deal of their own. Um, they could put it into stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, insurance products. The point is no timing restrictions, but, which is but, probably the most well, when they get thing. it, when they get it, it, they're not taxed on the deployment because it's seen as a loan. Exactly right. They just carried back 100% financing for the trust. So the deal we just did in Aptos, that was about a $6 million equity. They paid about a million off, million, million nine in debt. 
and they just have a promissory note written to them for $6 million. Typically, they're structured at 8% based upon their risk tolerance, compounding over a 10-year period of time. Not guaranteed, but then as a team with my business partners, we try to find the best commercial real estate syndicators and operators and financial advisors to manage the money. Now, client note holder has to approve everything. Okay. And then, and then funds don't move without their, 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 their approval. But then we go to work to try to out earn our fees and try to net them 8%, which is typically around nine and a half percent over a 10 year period of time. In the meantime, they have no more debt. They're liquid. If they want to stay in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, they're diversified. And then the best part is they can buy real estate at any time. And what I like to say is, but sell high and buy low. And in Minnesota, a gentleman did this in 2006 and he sold a $20 million asset across the street from the Minnesota Viking Stadium. And he was looking around for a 1031. He's worth a couple hundred million dollars. It didn't make any sense. So he did the deferred sales trust for the first time. Five years later, that same property he sold, Buck, he bought it back from the bank out of foreclosure. But mm-hmm. he bought it back at 60 cents on the dollar, a 40% discount. And oh, by the way, with a brand new depreciation schedule, using his deferred sales trust money, all tax deferred. And that's a big, big, big statement. But if you follow those things, you quickly see how this is becomes a transformational exit plan for clients. But also what we believe the best way to create and preserve more wealth because of that timing aspect of this, okay? Yeah. Second part of it, you can delay the payments. Think of it like a 401k. Right now, taxes are set to go up depending on if Biden gets um, the tax plan uh, passed and it could take a year or two to get done. But if that happens, you're going to want something that can delay payments. The deferred sales trust, you don't have to take any payments from it. You can turn off the spigot and therefore your net income is uh, the same um, versus other assets that you might have to take cash flow from. You may not have any depreciation to offset it. Therefore, you're having to pay tax. What I want you to think about is like selling a $5 million asset that's maybe producing, let's say $250,000 per year and you have no depreciation on it. So you're having to pay tax on that two fifty. dollars Moving into the deferred sales trust, delaying those payments, fast forward in two or three, four years, you find a deal that makes sense. You invest into that deal. You get a brand new depreciation schedule. And now you start taking some payments because you can offset it with the depreciation. So we're going like DST 2.0, but these are all the things that we help clients map out. Um, what are the, what's the minimum size transaction that makes sense for a deferred sales trust? $1 million net of all closing costs um, for the sale of the of the asset and then at least uh, two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars of liability deferred liability not being confused with gain your gain is probably going to need to be somewhere between let's say five and six hundred thousand dollars and then the net equity needs to be about a million to equal um, a, a deal that makes sense and why because we have fees and we want to make sure that your return on your investment makes sense which we use the rule of 72 which states if we can earn seven percent over a 10-year period of time, we can double that amount of money. So let's imagine it's a $5 million deal. It's earning 7% net of fees. In 10 years, you didn't take any distribution, Buck. Guess what? That five becomes 10 million. If you did that again, that 10 becomes 20. But most of our clients will live off the interest payments and they'll pay ordinary income tax along the way, but they'll keep that principal intact, okay? Right. And uh, that's part of how we map that out. We work with your tax professionals to, to perfect that. Um, you mentioned, uh, one thing that, uh, wasn't clear about it in, uh, you mentioned individuals using this strategy, um, for, for their, for their homes. So you could actually do this on a personal residence. Yes, you nailed it. Right. So one of the best deals ever was a $26 million primary home sale in Newport beach 
couples getting a divorce, they cannot do a 1031. They're faced with a $6 million liability. And so uh, they use the deferred sales trust to save 6 million. So what I do is I actually train and coach luxury realtors on how to do this to win more listings, but it's transformational for the client. Whereas a 1031 does not work for a primary home. The government gives what's called a 121 exclusion, which if you lived there two of the last five years, you have 250 single, 500 married. But above and beyond that, you have no other tax strategy except for a charitable remainder trust or a deferred sales trust that we really like. Now you could potentially do an opportunity zone too with that. Um, but the 1031 is only for investment property, which would mean you need to move out of the property, rent it for two years, and then 1031 into something which most folks just don't want to do. Yeah. So in that scenario, it's interesting was what you could do. And obviously I live in here and, uh, I live in Montecito, California, so that's a, a, a real problem for a lot of people. Um, Can I tell you about a deal that just closed in Montecito? Sure. Well, he's a, a big-time um, um, actor. His, his name is Rob Lowe. I know. And he's now a business, yeah. uh, he's now a client of, of, of um, my business partner. Um, and it was about a $45 million primary home sale. Mm-hmm. And he, he was very skeptical, like most people are. He hired three attorneys, and they were in the Bay Area, and he said, hey, poke holes in this thing. He paid him a lot of money. Okay. Uh, and they couldn't poke any holes in it. And he closed on the deferred sales trust. And so you can look that up, look up Montecito for, I think it was 44 and a half million dollar primary home sale. But, um, that is, that is, we think is the, the lowest hanging fruit, California, highly appreciated primary homes. Folks have been there for 10, 15, 20 years, right. And they feel trapped in their homes. We're doing another deal in Atherton right now for a nine and a half million dollar sale for a primary homeowner. So yeah, that's a big one. If you have a primary home, you should call us right away. That's very cool. Um, one other thing that makes, so I know a lot of people in my group uh, because we have a lot of, we do a bunch of real estate syndication. We have a bunch of, um, you know, pretty, uh, pretty wealthy individuals who are making sizable investments Um if you uh, say if you have a capital gain with recapture as a limited partner in a real estate syndication, do you have any options? Yes, we just did two deals, one in Phoenix and one in Nevada. It was a syndicator who sold a twenty million dollar asset, and he had you know twenty or thirty investors. Um, now those twenty or thirty, they had smaller fifty, a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand right. dollar investments, and but his was larger. And, he, and his partner. So as a GP, they're able to do their own deferred sales trust without having the whole entity move, which is typically what has to happen in a 1031. This is why most syndicators don't allow 1031 in and they do not 1031 out because not everyone's going to agree. So what's unique about it is they put those amounts into their own deferred sales trust to pay the rest of their investors back. They did another deal, $16 million deal in Phoenix, same thing, put it into the deferred sales trust. And then just yesterday or tomorrow, they're funding a, uh, an acquisition in Texas of which they took about 50% of the money that went into the deferred sales trust as a, as a, a silent partner on the side with them. And so they use the funds all tax deferred to uh, when they sold their asset and now to buy more. So the answer is absolutely. And that's probably the well, one I'm the I'm only, most excited the about. The only thing, the only, the question though, is that most of the people we're talking about are on that LP side, that limited partner side. And some of them, uh, you know, we, we have investors who are in, you know, half million, million dollars at a, at a deal. And then they'll be in a portfolio that gets sold. Boom. All of a sudden they've got, uh, you know, they might have a $2 million 
Oh, it uh, works for them. It can work for LPs or GPs, just to clarify. I'm right. just saying most most of the time, again, unless they're hitting those numbers now, right. they may have a $500,000 deal buck and then they have another $500,000 deal. Well, we'll still do the deferred sales trust because those two combined will hit that million dollars. Yeah. So just realize, but if it's just a one-off deal at 300,000 or 200, we'll say it's too small. Yeah. If you have a couple of these or different assets, you can form one trust and just keep rolling the funds into it. But it absolutely works for LPs as well as GPs. That's a, uh, that's something a number of you should note, um, you know, especially if you're investors in some of our, you know, WWC stuff and you've got an accumulation in one of our markets of, you know, a million, $2 million, uh, you know, a lot of times we're selling seven or eight properties at a time. And, um, so you, you could very well be hitting those kinds of, uh, situations. So that's very good to know. Um, you know, before we, uh, before we go, I do want to uh, talk a little bit about other options. And we in, in, and it's funny because we were talking offline. Unfortunately, you know, I have uh, one of my listeners I've been listening to, and she's a really smart entrepreneur. And um, I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning this, but she, you know, she ended up with a, you know, a big, uh, big partial sale of her business, ended up with 10 million bucks uh, um, in cash. And then we were trying to figure out what to do. Now, certainly she could have used one of these, uh, she could have used a deferred sales trust and that would basically solved her problem. Is that right? Correct. Because we'd have to do it before close of escrow before yeah. all these have been removed. So timing is of the essence here. By the way, we don't charge anything unless and if someone does a deal. But yeah. It, it, once it hits the personal bank account, that's what's called actual receipt. It's too late for us. If you're in a 1031 exchange, we can save a failed 1031 exchange because it's not in your hands, right? It's with the QI. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. remember, that's only investment property. So yeah, business sales, you definitely need to be beforehand. Primary home sales, definitely beforehand. And we need to set that up ideally a couple weeks at least, but definitely before the buyer removes all contingencies. Got it. Got it. Um, and um, the you know the other thing we were talking about is the only other option I can think of for these high capital gains individuals are um, in opportunity zones. Um, we probably should just mention that for completeness. Uh, it sounds like neither you nor I are huge fans of opportunity zones. Do you want to explain what an opportunity zone is and kind of some of the problems that there are there? Yep. It's another viable opportunity to defer capital gains tax like a 1031 or charitable remainder trust or Delaware statutory trust, of course, a deferred sales trust. Those are kind of the five that we really focus on, but we really um, geared towards the deferred sales trust. And the biggest reason is timing, right? Just like the reasons we don't like a 1031, we don't like a lot of the opportunity zones because you're selling high, right? And then 180 days later, you need to park the funds into this, this, this fund. And oftentimes those funds are in locations that aren't as desirable. And then B, the values have already been propped up because they're in an opportunity zone. And so you're looking at, you know, just buying higher. The next thing is you're typically tied up for 10 years if you want the, uh, really the full benefits of the, of the opportunity zone. So you're illiquid. You're also not diversified. You're typically with one group, maybe two groups, I mean, one or two deals. Um, and, uh, so you lose, oftentimes lose control. Right. And, uh, so it's just really not, I think a good time now, five years ago, buck opportunity zone with prices where they were with value add real estate. Hey, I love that. Right. The other thing about the opportunity zone is typically it's construction ground up because you're going to have to basically double the amount you paid for it. So if you bought a $10 million multifamily mm-hmm. property, that was going to be a value add deal. Well, guess what? You need to put another 10 million on top of that. 
Yeah. So that kind of takes that out of the out of the realm. But you have to buy something that's very, very either construction or just a teardown. So there's just a lot of reasons why I haven't seen. And you it. still I have like to the pay idea. the piper at some point, right? You still you have, have to, seven years. You yeah. have seven years to, to get back the original amount, right? And hopefully you refinance at that point. And any growth, and then you get some you get some ten percent, you know, knockoffs uh, along the way. So sure. there, there are some things there. But again, I just don't like overpaying. I don't like having diversification. I don't like having to have the timing not on my side because yeah. time buck is the one thing we can't back, get back. Right? We can make and break money, make and break businesses and deals, but we can't get our time back. And so when you can do something that allows you to have time and energy at your own time, uh, your own uh, motivation, your own needs, like the deferred sales trust, we just think, um, you know, it just far outweighs the 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 pros of the of the opportunity zone. Yeah, I'll just add to that in that, you know, my biggest issue with this really, I think echoing what Brett said is that, you know, you've got these these OZs, these qualified opportunity zones, they were, you know, there was a lot of hype on these things. And immediately what ended up happening is these areas that were, you know, that were they that qualified. And they qualified because they were not very nice areas. They all ideas to try to, you know, try to turn these communities into decent communities. But the, 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 the whole opportunity got, you know, the opportunity zone, part of it got priced into the property right away. And, and so it sort of essentially took out the value of investing in an area and trying to make it better because you're already overpaying for it as if it is in a better area. And uh, the other thing is that, as Brett mentioned, it was ground-up construction. So there's inherently a lot more risk in this stuff. And to me, you're essentially taking, you know, hard-earned money uh, that you had a nice liquidation event and putting into something that is in a, essentially in a, you know, like a D-class area. It's construction and you're banking on, you know, appreciation, uh, over a very long period of time, I mean, in that situation, I mean, frankly, I'm I'm probably going to personally just, you know, try to decrease how much I, uh, you know, try to overpay expenses for the next year in something and then take a hit on capital gains because I'm not really into that. I mean, you're certainly um, much better off with what Brett's doing for that kind of thing. But the key here, again, is that you have to plan ahead in all of these things. The money can never touch your hands. It has to go to the intermediary. And um, I think the, the the thing to do is if you get into these situations, uh, call Brett. If you think that there's an opportunity where you may be getting a million, $2 million of profit at least, uh, and you want to figure out how to, if, if there's an opportunity to not pay uh, you know, taxes by using this tool, at least contact him. So with that, Brett, how do we get a hold of you? Thanks, Buck. Appreciate it. Uh, you can go to capitalgainstaxsolutions.com if you are a high net worth individual and looking at this. Uh, you can also search that on YouTube. We have our podcast, Capital Gains Tax Solutions, which um, I believe um, uh, you also enjoy as well. And the, if you're a professional, like a, a luxury realtor, a commercial real estate broker, syndicator, or financial advisor, you can go to experttaxsecrets.com and you can learn about how to use the Deferred Sales Trust to add massive value for your clients and grow your business. That was expert tax. Uh, what was that? Expert experttaxsecrets.com. Okay, got it. Very good, Brett. Uh, thank you again for being on a Wealth Formula podcast, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you on again in the near future. Thank you, Buck. My pleasure.
We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So I was sort of surprised about some of the things you could do uh, here myself. I didn't realize you could really do anything about capital gains on personal homes, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's good to know. It's uh, good to know that you can, uh, uh, you can do that. Um, not that it helped me any. I lost 25% on the home uh, in the North Shore of Chicago that I had that, um, uh, that I bought in 2012. So anyway, listen, a few comments on cryptocurrency and asymmetric risk. Um, you know, I still see this is the beginning of a substantial Bitcoin bull run. I think it's just the beginning. I think Ethereum will go uh, with it. I think some of the uh, other alternative coins will. I do think that a lot of people got burned so badly last time on alts that not all of them are going to recover the same. Um, so I think it's going to be a little bit different game, but I still think there's an opportunity uh, to, to make money. So if you want relatively less risk but exposure to upside um, you know, of this bull market, it might make sense to look at potentially buying some Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, I do think that Ethereum probably has um, some gr possibly greater growth potential in the next, uh, you know, in the, in the immediate future uh, because it's still lagging um, uh, from, from uh, its all-time highs. I do think that um, um, it's wise, though, if you just are kind of casually entering this game, to pick a sell number before you buy so that, you know, you don't, you don't get overly, uh, you don't become kind of crazy. And then all of a sudden you've made all this money and then, you know, God forbid, all of a sudden the market comes crashing down and it, it you know, who knows what's going to happen. You've seen it happen multiple times now. Um, but you, you know, you basically got to figure out your, um, your buy, uh, your buy number is what it is and say, okay, if I get to this number, I sell, and I made some money and, you know, as a casual rider of a mar bull market, that's kind of what I would recommend. Um, although I'm not making any recommendations, but I think that that's probably wise. Now, I don't actually own as much Bitcoin as I used to, unfortunately. And that's, that's a long, disappointing story. Uh, but I do have some. I do not intend to sell for years. Uh, and will plan to, you know, accumulate monthly as a hedge uh, and ultimately is a bet that it's going to take on a greater meaning in the global economic system in the next, you know, five to 10 years. Um, as a reminder, you can get exposure to Bitcoin and Ethereum through the Grayscale Trust as well. Uh, their tickers are GBTC and ETHE. This is not investment advice. I'm just sharing you information. Um, another thought, and again, uh, it's just a thought on asymmetric risk that I've been thinking about. Uh, you know, uh, financial uh, financial uh, thinking uh, in your situation should be dynamic, right? I mean, you have some uh, fixed goals and what you want to accomplish, but as your wealth grows, uh, sometimes you need to, you know, um, reevaluate. We've always suggested that to limit your asymmetric risk uh, investments, uh, you know, 5%, maybe 10% at most, uh, so that, you know, you can hit some home runs uh, or strike out, not worry about it. And some of you, though, are getting to the point where you really make, you're making a lot of money. You've, you've, you've made a lot of money. You know, the uh, investor club has is, is, is added to that. 
uh, for you accredited investors. Uh, at, what, at what point, uh, if any, does it make sense uh, to up that percent of asymmetric risk portfolio? Okay, so bear with me. I mean, you know, I know I think boring is good. That's right. But the beauty of owning uh, assets like real estate is that they continuously are, you know, they're, they throw off cash and you can also have the ben- benefit of the principal growth. Now, if you're in the position where you've got more recurrent income than you need, maybe it's okay to be more aggressive. Okay. So here's where the thought comes from me. I mean, um, you know, I don't talk too much about my own personal goals, but you know, someday I want, I would love to be a, uh, you know, centimillionaire, right? So I have a net worth of, uh, over a hundred million dollars. Uh, there's, um, I don't know. Uh, there's long, I won't get into why, but I, I think that's sort of a long-term goal for me. Now, if I kept doing what I'm doing right now uh, for the next uh, several years, I, I think I'd get there uh, without doing anything terribly uh, risky. But it will not be nearly as quickly as it would if I made, you know, probably some bold bets. Uh, uh, and and uh, right now, you know, I can afford to do that, so maybe I should. I'm not saying I'm going to, but I, I'm just letting you know how my own thinking process uh, is evolving a little bit on this matter. And again, at that point, then the devil becomes, uh, you know, in the details even more because it's sort of like, okay, well, then what exactly are those asymmetric risk uh, uh, things? And um, anyway, uh, the point is, uh, you know, you can uh, you can make your own decisions on these matters and uh, you know f- figure out what makes sense for you. But I think I'm just thinking out loud, and maybe it's a steroid uh, I'm taking. So take it for what it's worth. I would just say that you know I think it's true that as our wealth grows, we have to constantly re- reevaluate um, if the trajectory we are on uh, provides the realistic ability of actually achieving our goals. And if it doesn't, then, you know, we have to reassess, reevaluate. Um, it doesn't mean that you, you know, you're herky and jerky. You may say, okay, I know that if I get to the point where, Hey, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to make, uh, you know, three, $400,000 a year from whatever residual stuff I'm getting in my investments and that kind of thing. Um, that after that, you know, I can be more aggressive with the investments that I make. Not like you're going to go hundred percent into, you know, this asymmetric stuff, but, um, then that you're just going to, uh, that you do give yourself license to know that, that, that is something that you might want to do in the future. Uh, anyway, that's enough for my steroid rambling. Uh, this is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.